The scripture reading today <clears throat> is from Psalm 119, verses 57 to 64. You are my portion, Lord. I've promised to obey your words. I've sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. I'll hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. I'm a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love, Lord. Teach me your decrees. This is the word of the Lord. I'll say a quick prayer before I begin my sermon. Heavenly Father, as I'm delivering my sermon to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I call upon the Holy Spirit to help keep me rooted in your truth. Grant me your wisdom to explain your word and spread the good news of the gospel. In your mighty name, I pray. Amen. Psalm 119. This is the longest psalm in the Bible. It consists of 176 verses, and they describe godly man's love for the word of God. At first glance, the 176 verses seem highly repetitive, rephrasing the same concepts in different forms. Examine the psalm, however, and you will realize that almost every verse introduces a new thought. It's a psalm that has something for everyone. Encouragement, exhortation, and sometimes rebuke. God's word is powerful, living, and active. It never changes because he never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His words are breathed straight from his heart to us, a love letter for life, not simply an old-fashioned and an outdated book with no relevance for today. As a takeaway, I encourage all of you to research more on the psalm from various lenses. For example, the structure of the psalm as an acrostic poem. How every verse mentions God's word in some way. It may be written as his word, ways, statutes, decrees, law, precepts, commands, or promise. And for all the math geeks out there, refer to Psalm 117, the shortest psalm in the Bible, and Psalm 118. And I want to encourage you to see God's precision in how the chapters of the Bible are symmetrically arranged around Psalm 118. But today, I'm only covering a very small section of Psalm 119, as certainly there isn't enough time to examine the Psalm in its entirety. The verses we are covering today are a reflection of God's commandments through his law, his statutes, and the determination and the hope of the psalmist to obey the living word. Let's now begin unpacking the psalm verse by verse. And just in case you get distracted, feel bored, or feel sleepy, you can always pick up at the next verse. Verse 57. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. 
the psalmist cries out, you are my portion, O Lord. Those are the words of a satisfied soul. The psalmist was satisfied with the portion received, and the portion was the Lord himself. The psalmist is saying here is that he wants his portion, his blessing, to be the Lord and nothing else. Just to give a context from Old Testament, it's very much like the ancient Levites in the tribes of Israel. You know, among all the tribes of Israel, each one received an inheritance of land, but not the tribe of Levite. The tribe of Levi was separated and God said, I will be your portion. I will be your inheritance. I will be what you possess. And this is such a powerful promise. And we could answer every temptation with this reply, the Lord is my portion. You see, if God truly is our portion, then we don't need to look for satisfaction in fleshly, worldly, meaningless pursuits. Now the second line of the verse, I would keep your words. This promise would be an empty wow without the empowering of God in our lives. When we have a close connection with God, when we receive and enjoy him as a portion, then we also receive the strength to keep his words. And we should pledge to God to keep his words because they are sustaining, satisfying, and enduring. God's word is not burdensome, but life-giving, for it comes from the mouth of the giver of life. His word is eternal. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. The word in the scripture is God speaking to us about his son, or God speaking to us through his son. The church is the community of people who are centered, built, and nurtured by the word of God. The leaders and its teachers are simply servants of Jesus, be it Paul or Paulus or Peter, who are sharing, who are reminding us of this word. The centrality of everything should be around Jesus and the good news about who he is and what he has done. He's the chief cornerstone on which the foundations of our life is built upon. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God the son took on full humanity to reveal his glory and grace to his people so that God could be known more fully. This surpassed what God revealed about himself and the law and is marked by grace and truth. Christ came to fulfill the mission of making God known to the whole creation through him, his word. Moving on to the next verse, 58. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. Now the primary meaning of the word grace is favor. Therefore, the psalmist is asking for God's grace and mercy. When God deals with us in grace, he gives us what we do not deserve. He's doing us a favor. Grace has been rightly defined as unmerited favor, and his mercy takes away the wrath we deserve. And grace gives us what we do not deserve. And thank God, there is grace and mercy available to us. 
God's grace, his favor, provides us with help and strength for whatever we must deal with in this life. Now, this fleeting life down here is never going to be a paradise. In this life, we will have our fair share of personal failures, grief, and pain. But with mercy to take care of our failures and with grace to strengthen and help to cope with whatever life throws our way, our greatest needs are provided. What better could we ask for? Second, mark how the psalmist asks for favor and mercy. He does so with his whole heart. There is no half-hearted prayer. The psalmist prays for this from the depth of his being, meaning what he says. It's as if he's asking for his life, which in reality he is. What would be the life of any of us without the grace of God? Life without God's grace is living death. Consider the psalmist's plea as he presents his request. Be merciful unto me according to thy word. The psalmist does not plead his own merit or goodness as a reason for God to be merciful to him. Rather, he pleads God's word of promise according to thy word. And God has promised his mercy to his people in his word. Isaiah 55 says, Seek here the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Let's unpack verses 59, 60 and 61 together. I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. I'll hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. In these verses, we see a twofold movement towards obedience. First, he gives thought to his ways. Second, he turns his feet towards God's testimonies without any delay. I think on my ways, this step of self-reflection leads to a pause in the career of sin and folly. It's proper for us all, whatever situation we are in, we should take a pause from time to time to reflect, to ask what will be the consequences of the course of life which is pursued, and turn our feet if it doesn't align with God's word. There is an actual turning from sin an actual turning to God. When a sinner turns, he leaves an old path and treads a new one. He does this as the conscious result of reflection on the course that he was pursuing. And it is indeed by the grace and help of God that the course of our lives are changed. If we satisfy ourselves with the opinions of men and the customs of the world, we shall be sure to err. In particular, we should notice what God has testified to us in his gospel and see whether in our spirit and the conduct we are doing, such as he requires us to be. In this lies the vast difference between the standard of the world and that of God. The world regards nothing but our outward conduct. And that chiefly in reference to the welfare of society, whereas God has respect and is interested in all our dispositions towards him and to all our motives and principles of action towards men. We should take the scripture then as our touchstone 
and see how far the whole habit of our minds accords with what is required of us and having ascertained what God's word requires, we should rectify our lives according to it. There's no one so blind as not to know what they have, that they have some reason for repentance. All of us have a reason to repent, but sometimes we procrastinate and put it off for future at, more, at a more convenient season. But it is folly to defer this important work. It must be done, or else we inevitably and eternally perish. The force of habit is exceedingly great. And the longer we fulfill the desires of the flesh and the mind, the more difficult it will be to modify and subdue them. We are in danger of provoking God to withdraw from us all the assistance of his spirit. There is much rejoicing, though, when we realize that Christ himself stands for us. He stands with us. It's Christ who bore the wrath of God and was taken up to heaven after his glorious resurrection. What we have here is a wonderful picture of the Savior who could not break God's law. Yes, our Savior is perfect, and his law-keeping is imputed to our accounts by grace through faith. <coughs> Verse 62, at midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Jesus is our model of praying without ceasing. The psalmist declares that at midnight he rises to praise God. How many times do you recall Jesus praying at night? Matthew 14, Mark 1. Yes, he frequently withdrew to pray, as mentioned in Luke 5, and we ought to follow his lead. David knew the value of alone time with God. Christian history is replete with men and women who were pleased to rise early in the morning to pray. Men and women of God usually have very full lives. Their lives are full of activities and busyness, which often makes for a hit-the-ground-running approach to the day. But it's imperative we spend time with our Lord, silencing the voices that vie for our control of mind. And what better reason or motivation have we for consistent prayer and praise than looking to God's righteous rules and being reminded of his perfections? God's righteous rules keep us turned in the right direction in our walk and our consistent helps in our sanctification. Psalm 63, uh, verse 63, I'm a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. This is the first time in this chapter that there is any reference to anyone other than the psalmist, God, or the wicked. Yes, up to this verse, there's no reference to other people of God. But God has put it here for us to study and digest, and that we must do. So what do we see? We see the common Old Testament concept for salvation. All who fear you, followed by a description of the people of God. Those who keep your precepts. We do not keep God's precepts in order to be justified, but we fear God and keep his precepts because we are justified. Salvation has always been by grace through faith alone and only in Christ. But one of the promised blessings of salvation is that we are made one with Christ. Therefore, we are companions of all who fear him. We have been united with Christ and every other believer in a special way, which breeds love 
tenderheartedness, compassion, and friendship. When your brother or sister suffers, you suffer as well. And to the extent that we are able, we ought to be involved in each other's lives. When Jesus departed, he told the disciples, and behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. What we have is an ever-present savior. We have a companion for life, eternity even. What a blessing. Finally, verse 64. The earth is filled with your love, Lord. Teach me your decrees. When you think of the earth and all that is going on, how would you describe it? We live in a day when the news that we hear is generally bad news. Evil is prevalent everywhere and Christians can easily fall into a very negative and fatalistic mindset. However, in these verses, the psalmist recognizes the amazing demonstration of the steadfast love of God. In what ways do we see the mercy and steadfast love of God in this fallen world? Consider the beauty of creation, the eternal plan of God for the salvation of sinners, the patience of God towards sinners, the provision of Jesus Christ, the blessing of relationships, the work of the Holy Spirit, the providence of God, and the eternal hope that he promises to his children. We must never focus on circumstances apart from a higher view of the eternal work of God that is sovereignly being accomplished in this sinful world. There is no person or group of people who will ever thwart the eternal purposes of God. In the second half of this verse, the psalmist appeals to the loving kindness of God to teach him his statutes. This is another demonstration of God's love profoundly demonstrated on this earth. He's willing to teach sinners his ways. If you struggle with focusing on the miseries of the world, rather than the greatness of God, let me encourage you to spend more time reading your Bible than watching the news. I want to end my sermon today by saying that true believers take the Lord for the portion of their inheritance and nothing less will satisfy them. Just like the psalmist, we should pray with our whole heart, knowing how to value God's blessing, his mercy, and his promises. No care or grief should take away God's word out of our minds or hinder the comfort that it bestows. There is no situation on earth in which a believer does not have a cause to be thankful. And let this fact make us more earnest in prayer and fill our hearts with his mercy, grace, and peace. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the great richness and truth of your word. Thank you that your word is a light for our path, a lamp to our feet, that gives direction for our days. May our lives be faithful to living each day according to your ways. Help us to love your words, to hide them within our hearts. Open our eyes that we might see your deep and hidden treasures and know you more and more. Help us to run in the path of your commandments. Thank you that you set our hearts free. Amen.